Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Jaime Anaspin received his PhD in 1972 from the University of Waterloo, where he was also on faculty for two years and has been a professor at Carleton University since 1994. He has also held an adjunct appointment with the Institute of Mental Health Research at the Royal Ottawa Hospital since 1993. Professor Anisman was a Senior Ontario Mental Health Research Fellow and is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and held a Canada Research Chair in Neuroscience from 2001 to 2015 and has since held the position of Canada Research Professor. The principal theme of his research has concerned the influence of stressors on neurochemical, neuroendocrine, and immune systems and how these influence psychological and physical illness, including neurodegenerative, heart disease, and cancer progression. His work has spanned studies using animal models to assess stress-related pathology, as well as studies in humans to assess stress, coping, and appraisal processes. In this regard, he has evaluated the behavioral and neuroendocrine consequences of dating abuse, the impact of chronic strain emanating from discrimination and stigmatization on well-being, depression, and PTSD among refugees from war-torn regions, as well as among indigenous groups that suffered childhood traumatization and the transmission of trauma effects across generations. In addition to sitting on the editorial boards of several journals and on numerous grant panels, Professor Anisman has published more than 400 peer-reviewed journal papers, 40 book chapters, and several review papers with the neuroscience, immunity, and psychology, as well as publishing three textbooks, one lay book, and two edited books. His research has been funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, the Ontario Mental Health Foundation, the Canadian Foundation for Innovation, and the Canada Research Chairs Program. All right, Dr. Jaime Anisman, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, Jaime, really, it's such a pleasure and honor to welcome you to the podcast today. And frankly, this is long, long overdue in many ways. Uh, the audience may not know, but I'm proud to say that we have a very long-standing relationship spanning just about 25 years, which I, I can't believe thinking about that. You were my undergraduate, master's, and PhD thesis advisor. And of course, you've continued to be a mentor thereafter. Um, I, I can't overstate how valuable actually my graduate training in behavioral neuroscience has been in my subsequent shift to clinical psychology. I use this knowledge every single session in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Jaime, I'm so looking forward to having a broad look at so many fascinating topics with one of the true giants in the field. So again, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Okay, so what I wanted to do was just to start us off perhaps a little bit broadly and then you know focus in on some finer points. One thing I want to talk about is lay out the basic relationship between stress and health, which is something that you're one of the foremost experts in. Like, for instance, we know up to two thirds of physician visits are actually for stress related or mental health concerns as opposed to sort of true underlying physical concerns. So when the doctor says it's probably stress, they may actually mean it and they're not just kicking the ball down the field. So I guess, Jaime, maybe just in a very broad way at first, can you lay out how stress can impact just about any aspect of health? Okay, it's, um, it's a tough question you've just asked me uh, because we would like to be able to say bad things happen, uh, I can't deal with it, and as a result, I'll, I'll fall into some anxiety or depressive state. But it's much more complex than simply that. The nature of the stressors we encountered, our social support systems available, how we cope with stresses and so on can have a very dramatic impact. And presumably, they do so uh, through diverse processes, among other things, 
by changing uh, brain chemical systems, uh, essentially overwhelming or overusing certain systems. And as a result, um, uh, we may be less able to cope. Uh, certain neurochemicals may be overly taxed. And as a result, uh, depressive or anxiety symptoms or PTSD uh, symptoms may evolve. And Jaime, as far as like physical health is concerned, things like cardiovascular illness, things like that, uh, what's the stress mechanism there as far as that goes? Okay, um, when we look at the effects of stressors, again, we need to look at this very, very broadly. And there's all sorts of intersecting systems that go along with stressors. Uh, but let me just focus on your question uh, for the moment. But when we're exposed to an acute stressor, uh, something that's fairly short-lasting and not overly intense. Okay, All sorts of processes, biological processes, uh, come into play so that we're prepared to deal with events around us. So, for example, uh, the immune system may be activated. Inflammatory responses, which are natural parts of your, um, of your system, uh, may be uh, activated as well so that we're prepared to deal with uh, all sorts of insults that may come, uh, may come along. So, for example, if the bear is chasing us through the woods, it's a good idea to have our immune system ready and able uh, to respond in case we get scratched or something else, thereby warding off infection. However, uh, this can go on for only so long. At a certain point, as I said before, our systems may be overworked, overwhelmed, and immune system functioning may be... Uh, maybe messed up, okay, so that we're now more vulnerable to various illnesses. But more than this, uh, we have uh, what we refer to as our inflammatory immune system or inflammatory system. When it goes on, uh, it's, it's good for us. But if it proceeds for too long a period of time, then we have the opposite effect. It's very bad. So when inflammation is present within your body, uh, which can be brought on by psychological factors as opposed to what we usually think about uh, such as a wound or something of this nature, when those systems are activated for too long, uh, all sorts of diseases can ensue. Uh, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, certain forms of cancer presumably can be exaggerated or exacerbated. Okay. And there's diverse processes by which inflammation will have these sorts of effects. So apropos to your question with respect to a heart disease, okay, Inflammation is a key factor that's involved in plaque formation in the, in the arteries, and that plaque uh, now increases uh, the pressure needed to push blood through, uh, leading to hypertension, and also leading to cardiovascular disease in general. Uh, the same thing is true of uh, cancer processes, where inflammation is very bad. It's, um, it's pro-carcinogenic, it's pro-tumorigenic, uh, in the sense that um, it enables uh, cells to multiply more quickly, provides energy sources for cells uh, so that they, these fast-growing cells have what they need to grow quickly. Jaime, mean, do you have any thoughts on why, you know, unremitting, ambiguous, uh, uncontrollable stressors are so potent with respect to their ability to tax these, these systems? Yeah. Uh, when we can cope with stressors, okay, the problem is not too bad. In a, in a sense, um, when we deal with stressors, we do so through behavioral methods, okay, 
uh, coping methods, social support methods, and at the same time, our biological systems are trying to help us deal with these stressors. Now, when uh, a stressor is an uncontrollable one, for example, okay, we can't do anything behaviorally uh, to contend with a stressor, the burden rests more heavily on systems that, um, that are of a biological nature. Now, when we encounter certain types of stressors, if they're unpredictable, also, as I just said, uncontrollable, they're ambiguous, and they go on for a long period of time, it's the chronicity that's very important here, okay, our systems become overly taxed. And we refer to this as allostatic overload. Uh, this concept was made famous by uh, great scientist Bruce McEwen, who passed away about a year ago. But what he suggested that was that when these systems become overly taxed, okay, we essentially, two things can happen. We essentially may not have the wherewithal to deal with uh, challenges. And at the same time, uh, when these systems are overly taxed, meaning that there's too much neuronal functioning happening, certain types of cells um, may undergo death. Okay? Receptors, for example, in the brain region, uh, referred to as the hippocampus, uh, which is very important for a number of things, but one of them being regulatory processes involving various hormones. Okay? Uh, when these cells are hit too often, okay, uh, they may decline or they may die. And as a result, um, the systems that this should be shutting off aren't shut off. And so this, this creates a loop whereby too much activity goes on for a very long period of time. And this then results in psychological disturbances. Okay. Might even be a, a forerunner to uh, neurodegenerative disorders such as uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease. Jaime, from an evolutionary perspective, like it strikes me that this ultimately becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where the, the the body and brain keeps making shorter and shorter time horizon kind of hedges with respect to what it needs to do. Like I'll, I'll make trade-offs for the next 30 seconds. Who, you know, who cares about the next six months? But it seems that like that snowball starts to go downhill and it accelerates going downhill. Uh, we see this clinically with people as well, right? Where their coping efforts tend to sort of generate more and more negative consequences as time unfolds. Is that just a, an artifact of nature optimizing for upfront versus the long term? Or what do you think about the way the system's been designed from that angle? I think you've just asked me about a dozen questions all to that <laughs> one. Uh, but basically, uh, if you look at natural selection, okay, um, natural selection occurs, okay, um, presumably, to help us deal with ongoing events so that um, those critters or those humans or pre-humans um, are able to survive and pass on their genes, having certain characteristics present, then these characteristics will be passed on to the next generation. So a gazillion years ago, uh, our forebears, presumably, were able to contend with stressors, okay, uh, by certain um, biological mechanisms being inherited from one generation to the next. And those characteristics that were good to help us survive that day uh, will be passed on. Okay. Now, what natural selection typically doesn't do is think about it and say, well, what am I going to need five years from now or 10 years from now? Okay. It's, it's trying to live in the moment. So let's use an example. Uh, having high levels of cortisol, 
or in animals, uh, the, the equivalent is corticosterone, has all sorts of characteristics to it that help us survive. So it's involved in energy regulation. It's involved in, uh, along with other uh, hormones, it's involved in the release of free fatty acids, all of which help us uh, deal with the moment. Okay, If this cortisol uh, function goes on for a very long time, it can have bad consequences. But natural selection wasn't thinking about that. Natural selection was based on the here and now. So uh, we may have inherited that response um, of cortisol going up, which is cool for the moment. And we, we basically didn't pay attention or natural selection didn't pay attention to things that were going to happen several years from now. So that's some of the baggage we carry uh, from our ancestors. Okay. Um, now, let's be realistic. It, for our ancestors, this probably wasn't a big deal. They only lived for whatever, 20 or 30 years. For us, we want to live 70, 80 years. And so having those, um, those cortisol changes uh, go on for too long will now manifest themselves as, uh, for example, promoting obesity. And that obesity uh, may be bad for heart health, cancer, and so forth. Yeah, I think there's a number of these interesting trade-offs. I believe protein consumption has a similar kind of arc to it as well, where enhanced protein uh, consumption really enhances wellness when you're young. The trade-off is that it predicts things like cancer and whatnot later on in life. So there's all these kind of yeah. interesting trade-offs that we end up having to manage physiologically. Yeah, th this occurs for very many systems. Uh, and, and we see this uh, across a number of diseases. So as I just mentioned earlier, when inflammatory processes are activated, it's a good thing. So back in caveman days, having that big inflammatory response uh, was very beneficial. Okay, Eating certain foods, as you just mentioned, can have the very same types of effects. Okay, And we now know, of course, that certain types of diets are necessary in order to offset those effects. So a Mediterranean diet, for example, which we often think of as an anti-inflammatory diet, might not have great effects today or tomorrow, but it's going to catch up to you down the road. Uh, I should add, though, uh, things that you eat when you're young can also, like when you're a little kid, two or three years old, can also have carryover effects that manifest themselves when you're your age, still a kid, but my age as well. Okay, So there's all these actions that carry over, uh, over, over uh, decades. And not only that, what mom ate while she was pregnant can also affect her microbiome, her gut bacteria and bacteria over other parts of her body, which can affect the offspring and so forth. So Jaime, that's a great segue to some of the early life uh, events narrative that I want to get into. So, you know, you've talked about the stress response being this preparatory system. It will get the inflammatory response going in anticipation of getting a scratch when you're getting chased by the bear. Uh, it seems like the early life landscape is very critical to setting up later responses to stress from a variety of perspectives, right? It's almost like the brain is downloading lessons from those very early formative development, from that formative developmental period to make hedges and bets about what the later environment will be like. So, you know, Jaime, could you lay out how the early life events translate into sensitivity to stressors or, or vulnerability to stressors uh, late, later in life? And feel free to go as, into the weeds as much as you want in this. It's, this is a really fascinating area. Okay, I will do. Um, there's multiple ways by which events early in life, and including those when you're a fetus, 
uh, can translate to actions when you're 20, 30, 40, and so on. Okay. Now, think of this. Let's think of a kid who uh, encounters a traumatic stressor when they're young. And this needs to be differentiated from a tolerable stressor. When I say a tolerable stressor, I mean one that you can handle. And in a sense, tolerable stressors might be good for you in case of kid. It teaches you how to deal with uh, various challenges that you might meet along the way. But if that stressor is a toxic stressor, in other words, it's not tolerable, it's very bad, it can change uh, a number of behaviors, um, and these behavioral changes would carry on. So let's take the case of a young kid who's been abused, psychologically or physically abused. That will change that, kid, that kid's behavior next year and the year after. The kid may develop poor self-esteem. They might feel they don't have control over their lives. They have low self-efficacy. Uh, and this then influences how they cope with later challenges. So when this three-year-old now is an adolescent, they're 18 years old, they may not be functioning properly uh, with respect to how to cope. And this then uh, leads to vulnerability to disease. At the same time, when they're very young and they encounter these traumatic events, neurochemical changes, hormonal and brain neurotransmitter changes may occur. Now, we often think of stressors as having transient effects on these biological systems, but it's not the case at all. Once a certain neurochemical system is activated, it's essentially primed, or what we call sensitized, so that when you encounter a later challenge, those neurochemical systems will be activated much more quickly and you will get a larger response. So when you have the child who's been abused when young, when they get into a situation when they're 18 again or 35, uh, and they, that situation is reminiscent of what they had encountered before, but actually not just reminiscent in response to a, a wide variety of stressors, okay, those same neurochemical changes will be activated much more quickly. And as a result, uh, behavioral changes such as depression or anxiety uh, will ensue. But th there's more to it than, than just that. Um, as you know, um, to a great extent, our behaviors are determined or influenced by uh, genetic factors. So if you have certain genes, you might be producing more or less of a certain chemical that may be good or bad for you. And for, for decades, it was thought that um, whatever you inherited from your parents, that was it, okay? For better or for worse, okay? We now know that uh, environmental factors, various types of experiences, can influence the way these genes are expressed. The genes themselves aren't altered. They're still the same, okay? But through a process which is referred to as epigenetics, okay, epigenetic changes, these genes um, may be shut down for the moment, okay? Their, their actions are suppressed, okay? Or they might be uh, more readily activated, okay? So in a sense, um, your genes are not uh, your destiny, as we say, okay? But instead, um, follow you or may follow you, they're not all permanent, may follow you throughout life so that uh, you have more activity in these genes or less activity and hence allowing you to cope better or worse. Okay. Now, what's interesting about these is these epigenetic changes is there's some pretty 
good evidence, certainly from animal studies, but from human, some human studies as well, that these epigenetic changes can be uh, transmitted from mother to kid. Okay, uh, So if she was pregnant when she was stressed, it can show up in her children. But also the children can pass on these epigenetic changes to their children, provided that, um, that these uh, epigenetic changes occur in the right place, uh, meaning on germ cells, sperm or ova. Okay. Now, uh, we, we know that, um, for example, this will happen with standard types of stressors, okay? uh, but it can also happen with, say, um, uh, food-related events or um, famines. Okay? So during the Dutch hunger famine many years ago, you had the children and the grandchildren show epigenetic changes that were, re that were relevant to that famine experience. I should also say here that there, there, it's, a, it's actually a very interesting process. Often when people talk about epigenetic changes, um, the view is usually adopted uh, that this could lead to something bad, but it can also lead to something good. Okay? Much as challenges uh, that we encounter or our forebearers encountered uh, led to a, a hardier organism, through natural selection processes, those characteristics made us hardy, and these epigenetic changes can make us hardy as well. So let's use a, a simple example in a sense. If mom is pregnant and so happens there's a famine around, she doesn't get the nutrients she needs, and somehow this information is transmitted to her fetus. That fetus now will become more prepared after it becomes a, uh, a human, okay, and will be more prepared to deal with um, famine that's prevalent. Okay, so uh, energy stores are stored. Okay, for longer periods of time and more efficiently. The problem you run into is that the fetus doesn't know what it's going to encounter. It's being prepared for a famine. Well, what happens if that fetus now comes out and famine is over and there's food plenty? Okay, now when that child eats the food and the food is digested and kept in an energy store, okay, it's the wrong store. Okay? It's being preserved for the famine. And because there is no famine, little Joey now starts to get larger, which has bad consequences down the road, even at the present, but down the road. And obesity, as we know, is associated with all sorts of diseases, including heart disease and accounts for most or a very large number of cancers above and beyond the influence of genetic factors, okay? So the epigenetics here can have good effects, they can have bad effects, depending on what you run into. So, uh, I mean, appreciating this might just be speculation uh, on your part or being asking you to speculate. When we're meeting with a client, uh, how attuned should we be to sort of generational contributions to our case conceptualization? Are these subtle effects? Because I'm imagining much in that... In parallel to the example that you used around food, it strikes me that there could be a psychological sort of analog to that as well, right? Where the person's, let's say, personality structure is being torqued slightly towards a suboptimal uh, psychological or emotional environment, but they may pop out into a very healthy uh, family and be, you know, maybe a little bit mismatched with respect to what the environment's demanding versus what they're bringing to the table. So, yes, yeah, as, as clinicians, how can we use this knowledge to help us? Yeah, that, that's a very tough one, actually. Uh, 
as a clinician, you may delve into the person's past, but you may not delve into the person's parents' past. Okay. Now, what did those parents experience? So let's use a, a specific example again. Survivors of the Holocaust, um, 1939 to 1945, okay, may have a different worldview than other people might have. Same thing is true of indigenous people who've gone through residential schools and all the trauma associated with that. They have a different worldview. And having had these horrible experiences, the way they behave towards their children may have changed. Sometimes the behavior towards their children might be one of um, deep desire to make their children better, to protect them. Sometimes it might be a little bit or a lot overprotective. At other times, a number of different factors play into it. So, for example, let's use the experience of uh, children who had been at Indian residential schools. Uh, you're probably familiar with this. this. These are children who were basically taken away from their families okay, and brought up in these horrible schools uh, where they suffered toxic stresses of various sorts. Uh, they weren't allowed to speak their own language. Their hair was shorn. Uh, they were abused eight ways from Sunday. Okay, And who were their mentors, in a sense? Who were their role models? Well, it was the people who were taking care of them, people who were not very good role models. This person now, we, we can go back to studies, by the way, in the 1950s by Harry Harlow. If you have a monkey in his studies who was a bad mom, okay, her children, her offspring, would also become bad moms, okay? So in this case, uh, the children coming out of the residential schools, what they've learned is what they did from what they experienced from their role models, in this case, the, uh, the caretakers, and they may then emulate their caretakers, okay, and become poor parents themselves. I'm not saying by any means that survivors of res residential schools are poor at uh, taking care of their children, but it could happen, okay? Now, one of the problems that you run into in trying to analyze these types of events is that we need to put it in a much broader context. So let me contrast now the Holocaust survivor versus the Indian residential school survivor. Both of them have experienced really bad trauma, okay? And to be realistic, you can't compare this trauma to that trauma. They're totally different. Two traumas, two stresses of any sort, they might seem similar, but they're totally dissimilar in multiple ways. Okay? But after the trauma is over, what happens? This becomes critical. Okay? The trauma survivors, those of the Holocaust, they then, for example, migrated from Europe, England, Canada, the United States, and they found a new place. They had a new social group. Okay, they were supported. Okay, some of them may have gotten to go to Israel, for example, and this was their quote homeland. This was a safe place. Okay, so the trauma of the that they experienced earlier is not gone. It's still there. Okay, but it's it's diminished, and they certainly have social supports. Okay, thus their children now being brought up are bring up being brought up in a new fashion. Okay, there is a problem because even if parents are trying to hide the information, the past trauma from the children, in a sense to protect them, okay, very often uh, the message is passed from the parent to the children 
in uh, unspoken language. Okay? The children pick up a little bit here, a little bit there. They fill in some blanks. And sometimes they may have an exaggerated view of what happened. It's hard to imagine any exaggeration on the Holocaust, but you get my drift. Contrast what I just described to the um, Indian residential school experience. These kids, after the trauma experience, didn't go to some, quote, new land. They went back to their reserve, which was already in poor condition to begin with because of colonialism. Okay? But more than that, once the children were taken from the reserves, okay, uh, the community may have fallen apart. Things didn't get, hadn't gotten better. Things had gotten worse. The deprivations uh, imposed by governments uh, were still more pronounced. They didn't have the safe place. Okay, so it's not just the original trauma; it's the the subsequent events. Now, earlier I had mentioned to you about the sensitization and the effects of chronic stressors. Well, the children, okay, of the survivors of the Holocaust didn't experience those chronic stressors. The children of the First Nations people who were on reserves and, and others, not just First Nations, um, uh, basically, as I said, didn't have the safe place. They the deprivations continued. And this, of course, was uh, exaggerated by new traumas that they encountered, lack of education, okay, lack of medical services, poor food. Okay? And the consequences are, are obvious. Okay? Now, all that said, there's an, a very important element that has to be explained here. And that is, we often look at, and people do research, saying, what are the bad effects? Okay, How have epigenetic changes and how have early bad experiences weakened us? Okay, Well, you know, amongst uh, the children of the Holocaust, their attitude is, yeah, no, no, no. This hasn't weakened me. This has strengthened me. Never again is this going to happen. Okay, uh, In a sense, it's created resilience. And for First Nations people, we're finally seeing this, okay? It's really amazing what's going on. It's small still, but it will grow. It's the same thing that's been happening with uh, Blacks in the U.S., okay? Say, never again, okay? We're going to take control of our own destinies. I have resilience, and I'm going to be made stronger by those bad experiences, okay? That history, as we said before, doesn't define me in a bad way. It's defining me and saying, you can overcome this. You can be stronger. Okay. So I, I guess your question of how do you look into a person's past and see how it affects them? I, I went through a long route to tell you it's difficult. Okay. And but when we look at the person's past, okay, we need to not just look at the early experiences, but what happened in previous generations. So we often talk about uh, cumulative historical trauma. Okay, what's happened over generations and how has that affected us? And then look at the times, look at the context. 30 years ago, it may have been all about what makes me weaker. Today, we, we look more at what makes me resilient. Okay, for the therapist, I don't know, you're a therapist, I'm not, but it might be good for the therapist to say, okay, you've had these bad experiences. I don't only want to help you get over the bad events and your thoughts and things like this, but I'm going to help you, I hope, make you stronger by pointing out what this can help you bring to your own table to make you a tougher, more resilient person. Treat those traumas as 
tolerable events in a sense okay, that can strengthen you. Yeah, Jaime, I love all of that. And that is, those are such important points. I think when any client comes in, they have a set of emotional needs for validation, for support, for acknowledgement. So yes, like absolutely, these things have happened and they're terrible. But people also have cognitive needs for perspective, for distance taking, for problem solving, for fostering resilience. So I think both, I think what I'm hearing in both what we're saying is both needs need to be there. needs to be acknowledgement, reconciliation, you know, sort of uh, truth seeking, but then also reminding people that, you know, there's meaning that can come from these experiences and there's new levels of resilience that people can access that perhaps wouldn't have been able to be available without those experiences. Obviously we wouldn't want people to have those experiences period, but if they've happened, there is a strength and resilience people that people can find in trauma, uh, undoubtedly. You know, when we look at coping mechanisms and you just touched on this, uh, one of the ways we, we deal with stressors, there's many coping strategies that we have, uh, but one of them is finding meaning in bad things. Okay. So, for example, cancer survivors uh, are grateful to have survived, obviously, uh, but they also have learned something. They've learned about the value of smelling the roses or the coffee or whatever it is. And what you find is that some people who've undergone traumatic events are going to try to help others. It might be in the form of uh, taking a long walk to collect money uh, for research for cancer, or it might be in... um, like the Michael J. Fox Foundation to help people with Parkinson's, or it might be, there's many of these foundations that I have developed as a result of this. Um, it might even be in terms of mothers against drunk drivers, mad. Okay, But it's a tremendous way of coping, finding meaning or making meaning, but we have to be careful because not any, everybody who wants to find meaning is successful in doing so. Okay, And sometimes when a person seems to keep trying and keep trying, uh, it might be an index that they're not getting there and they need to find some other way of, of finding resolution to their problems. But by the same token, finding meaning or getting people to look at the past, okay, their past experiences, and help them, guide them, if you will, or allow them uh, to find uh, some positive attributes. It's hard to talk about positive attributes of a cancer experience. But there, there may be some, okay, so that the person can move forward in a good way and tell them essentially or help them understand that your bad experiences have opened your eyes, made you much more resilient in a sense, okay, so that you can deal with whatever comes along later. Timing on this is very important. So, for example, if the person has overcome the trauma, the original trauma, okay, and they're still depressed and things like this. Well, at that point, you can help them, as I said, find meaning in the past. But at the same time, because their biological systems are sensitized, they've been primed, even small events that come along can have the opposite effect. And I guess what you guys do in your job is to help people um, deal with those new events okay, so that they can put these in a proper context and say, no. I'm not going to let this get to me. This is how I'm going to deal with it. I have a plan in place and I'll be able to move forward. You know, Jaime, I'd love to get your take on this. What I've seen as a clinician and having done literally thousands of hours now of trauma therapy with people is that 
when traumas happen, there's like a psychological immune system that kind of kicks in that creates certain sort of suite of behaviors and cognitions that protects the person from the full blunt force trauma uh, of, of the trauma, I guess we could say. But then, you know, the work of therapy is often deconstructing that psychological immune system so that we can have a real honest conversation but w- about what actually happened, its full impact and what it meant. And what I find is that people can't access the meaning unless they're able to access the truth of what happened. And a lot of those stuck points come from things like, it wasn't so bad, it was my fault, uh, I should have known better. You know, things that people put in place to get a sense of control that are, that really doesn't map the truth of the situation. They weren't in control. It wasn't their fault. It was really bad. But that psychological immune system, I think, is optimized for up front, but it can stay, like the on switch can stay stuck, you know, so that people can't sort of fully process these things. What, what Does that dovetail with the way that you see it? Absolutely does. Uh, and it does so in a number of ways. First of all, what, uh, what often happens when a person experiences a trauma, and I, uh, I don't know how common it is, but I expect it's fairly common. And when I teach my clients, I, I tell my students about this because uh, there's certain types of trauma that we're all going to share. Okay? Everybody's going to die, and our parents will die. We might lose children, uh, and so forth. But one of the funny, not funny, haha, but odd things that happens is People will say, I thought I would feel a lot worse when mom died, and I didn't feel as bad as I expected to feel. Okay. Uh, well, this is a nice biological response that we have. There's a blunting uh, of our emotional responses and of our cognitive responses, so the full impact doesn't hit us right away. But instead, it seeps out in bits. And over the next little while, the full recognition of what happened will occur. For some people, however, and I've encountered a number of people who told me about this, uh, they feel guilty for not feeling bad enough. Obviously, if I didn't feel bad enough, I must be a lousy son or daughter. Okay? And you, if they're forewarned about this, okay, this is what you will feel. Okay? You're ahead of uh, the curve, in a sense, and so you know what to expect. Then there's the other part of it, uh, and that is, when we look at post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, one of the things that um, before the DSM-5 came along, there was a differentiation of acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, but people wanted to look at, they, they felt that aspects of acute stress disorder might be uh, relevant for post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, in acute uh, stress disorder, the char- one of the characteristics is a dissociative state. This isn't real. This is not happening. Things of this nature. But then it was found that these factors did not predict um, whether post-traumatic stress disorder would occur and whether it would have some uh, effects with respect to being able to uh, diminish PTSD symptoms. And so when you look at the DSM-5, they're treated separately. Okay. Now, from some recent research that was actually done here in Ottawa um, at the Royal Ottawa Hospital, it seems that among PTSD uh, affected individuals, there's a subset that will show these types of characteristics as the dissociative characteristics. And they can be distinguished from other PTSD patients. And um, it seems that they may have dissimilar um, 
biological features, such as the presence of inflammatory factors that can affect the brain. And we don't know for sure, but it might be the case that they ought to be treated differently. So uh, if a patient, for example, has a mental disorder, mental illness that's associated with inflammation, in some cases, you'll see this being the case in depression. In some cases, you'll see this uh, being, the, uh, being present in PTSD. Then a simple treatment, not the full treatment, but an adjunct treatment, might be one of using an anti-inflammatory drug. Okay? So aspirin okay, might help, a, a, along with the other treatments, not by itself, might help in alleviating symptoms. Now, this is provided that inflammatory factors are, um, are a main feature of the disorder. If they have the type of PTSD or depression that's independent of inflammatory factors, well, then it's not the case that the anti-inflammatory agent, the aspirin, will have any effect. So what we really would like to do for all of these illnesses, whether they stem from early life experiences or adult experiences, is have biological markers or biomarkers that tell us about the patient, okay? So if you see, for example, that your inflammatory response is very high, which can be easily determined by uh, measuring a substance called C-reactive protein, uh, most of us at over the age of 50, when we go in for a medical test and we go and get some blood taken, C-reactive protein is ordinarily measured because C-reactive protein is a good predictor of heart disease. But that same inflammation that's associated with heart disease may also be relevant to mental illnesses. And mental illnesses, of course, in heart disease are highly comorbid, possibly because of the inflammation that's present. Okay? So my, my point here is that there are ways to dissociate one type of disorder uh, from that same disorder having other characteristics. Okay? And for the clinician, uh, it's important, of course, to know about history and things like this, but biological substrates that they carry uh, can also give them a lot of information as to what to do. Jaime, when I was coming through the lab, we were doing a lot of work on psychoneuroimmunology, right? The link between the brain and the immune system. And there was a lot of hope that, you know, these inflammatory models of depression would lead to new treatments and, and things like that. I mean, I have to say, I haven't seen it translate so directly to the to the clinical sphere. What What is the evidence that's emerged around, again, maybe that subset of folks who do have that inflammatory subset, subtype of depression? Do we know who these folks are? Do, do they respond reliably, in fact, or is it still at the level of a theoretical mechanism? Oh, it's... There's been huge advances over the years, okay? Um, when I first started in the field, which was in the 1970s, uh, before you were born, <laughs> <laughs> um, people thought as the brain being independent of the immune system. They were two separate processes or two separate structures. And um, a lot of people didn't accept that psychological functioning could affect the immune system and conversely, the immune system can affect psychological functioning. Okay? Later it became clear that the two did go together, but the question remained, well, how did this happen? We now know uh, that there's a number of factors that may be involved. We also know that just as our body has an immune system, to a certain extent, our brain also has its own immune system. Now in the body, the immune cells, T cells, B cells, natural killer cells, various other neutrophils and so forth, all contribute to these inflammatory processes that are either good or bad for us. 
But the brain has a set of cells, okay, astrocytes, okay, that for the longest time had been considered the help, okay? That is, they, um, they provided food and took away garbage so that neurons would survive well, okay? And that was basically their function. Uh, now, it turns out that these astrocytes, okay, uh, do a lot more. So one form of astrocyte, microglial cells, have, their, have a protective capacity in that they release certain chemicals called cytokines uh, that help the brain deal with challenges that might be there. Of course, our, our brain also has its own garbage disposal system by which it takes toxic substances out and helps you get rid of them. And so, for example, during sleep, okay, this operates much more efficiently. The canals through which these toxic substances are eliminated are slightly greater, slightly wider, okay? But we know that these microglia and the chemicals, the cytokines uh, that are released can have good effects. But uh, once again, if things go on too, for too long a period of time, those same chemicals will have bad effects. They can kill off cells. But the point here is that these same cytokines have also been implicated in the production of depression, okay? So the key is, well, how do we diminish these cytokines without affecting, say, peripheral system, immune cells within the body, okay? Now, as I said before, anti-inflammatory treatments might be very good, okay? One of the problems is um, it's really quite interesting how different fields uh, get into battles with one another. But in heart disease, for years, we were told, if you want to avoid it, take two baby aspirins or a day or one baby aspirin a day, okay? Then uh, the Heart Association came down saying, well, you know what? The risks of bleeding gut uh, may be too great, and so you're probably better off not taking baby aspirin, okay? Well, that might be true for heart disease, but I'm not sure it's so true for diseases such as cancer um, or diseases such as depression. In fact, there's a good deal of data suggesting that baby aspirin could have very positive effects in diminishing the occurrence of cancer and in the treatment of some forms of cancer. And the same thing may be true of um, psychological processes. Once again, we need to have the biomarkers that, are, that will tell us who is suffering because of uh, excessive inflammation and who isn't. Okay? But in, apropos to your question as to have we been making progress, yes, but you run into these roadblocks. Um, if you use the uh, aspirin and it might help you with your depression, what are the consequences going to be with respect to bleeding gut or other syndromes related to that? Um, but I, it's actually quite interesting that one of the hot topics in recent years from the biological perspective has been inflammation as a factor in relation to mental illness. Aside from the long, long standing interest of inflammation related to physical diseases, somatic disorders. Uh, and I expect that over the next few years, you'll see much, much more of this occurring. Uh, what's also very interesting in that respect is you'll see that other uh, fears of interest, such as uh, your gut microbiota, as you know, there's trillions of bacteria present within your gut, okay? Some good, some not so good, but they operate in a balanced way, okay? Um, 
It's referred to as eubiosis. And it's very healthy, obviously, to have the right balance. One of the things that's present in the gut is 70% of your immune system. The food you eat is very dirty. It can potentially have all sorts of crummy stuff on it. And so you need your immune system or lots of immune factors present in your gut to clean that up. And the microbiota and your immune system speak to one another. And microbiota regulate immune system functioning. Okay? We now know that the foods you eat will influence the gut bacteria that are present to prevent a dysbiotic or an imbalanced state and will provide certain uh, microbiota that are healthy for you. Uh, as a result, um, over the past 20 years, I guess, there's been a, a very, very great interest in looking at microbiota and trying to predict on that basis who is going to be vulnerable to uh, anxiety or depressive disorders. Uh, a fellow in Ireland by the name of John Cryan is probably best known uh, for this type of work. Absolutely wonderful and brilliant fellow. And um, his research and that of many others who followed along the same path here in Canada, we have a woman by the name of Jane Foster who's at McMaster who's done very uh, similar work. One of my ex-postdocs um, who's now at the University of Ottawa, Marie-Claude Odette, has been doing exactly the same type of thing and looking at what are the microbiota and inflammatory processes that are present in depressed people and how can these be altered, including by diet. So, for example, when you're stressed, okay, as we said before, you'll have immune changes occur, inflammatory immune changes, and at the same time, um, your microbiome will be altered. Okay? Now, if you can change the, um, these inflammatory factors by aspirin and things like this, can it also happen through diet? Okay? Now, you know, a lot of people tell you that changing diet, that's quirky stuff. That's... Uh, you know, that, that, that nutraceutical group with all the false and fake uh, medications. I'm not talking about prebiotics and probiotics in pill form, okay? You can have lots of pro and prebiotics in the foods you eat, okay? So some yogurt will go a long way. But you can alter your microbiota. You can alter it through that your immune system, okay? Uh, your inflammatory immune system, which can be helpful for... Uh, certain types of illnesses like depression and anxiety. I, I do want to make the, the point that, uh, you know, there's all sorts of foods that people go and get. Uh, I can't help but laugh. I shouldn't be laughing about this. Um, but I can remember going into one of these health food stores and you're, you're faced with all sorts of little additives and things like this. And a kid comes over and says, can I help you? And I said, well, I don't know. What do you got that's good for me? Anyway, and next thing I know, this kid's showing me this and that and um, all sorts of fake stuff. And I'm thinking, I'm being, I'm being instructed by an 18-year-old kid who just finished high school about what's good for my health. I mean, he's a good kid, but he doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, but people go in there, they have this belief system that if, it, if it's natural, it must be good. Hemlock is natural, but it's not good. Yeah. Right. Poison ivy, poison oak, poison this, poison that. You know, they have a name, poison, at the front of it for a reason. <laughs> you know? 
So if it comes from the ground or if it grows on a tree, it isn't necessarily good. It might be, but it isn't necessarily so. At any rate, uh, your best bet if you want to in, improve your gut uh, microbiota is to eat the right foods okay, uh, that have high uh, prebiotic and probiotic content. In, I'm not so sure. There's all sorts of debate whether meat is good for you, bad for you, or has no effect. But you do know that certain types of diets, like uh, uh, vegetar- like Mediterranean diet, for instance, particularly if it contains um, extra virgin olive oil, not your ordinary olive oil, but the extra virgin type, uh, is going to be pretty good for you. Yes, no, for sure. When I'm speaking with any client, especially with depression, where there's so many com, there's so many, there's no common final pathway to depression, right? So you don't really know exactly, perhaps, how the person's got there. So my approach is typically to throw the kitchen sink at it, right? Like, what are you doing for diet? What are you doing for exercise? Where's your sleep at? Social support, like, really, sort of a biopsychosocial. Uh, approach to that. Jaime, I want to quickly go back to one thing before I forget it. And I was just made a note for myself to follow up. It's the biomarker piece. And this might actually bring up a way bigger issue than we mean to get into, but in, in, it's okay. We'll see where it goes. One thing that I've, I've read around the biomarker piece is that we're trapped within sort of the diagnostic system that we have in this sense. If you're using, say, the DSM to look for biomarkers and it tells you what the biomarkers are, then why do you need the biomarkers, right? Because they simply sort of reverse confirm the diagnostic system that you're using in the first place. Using that as a platform for this line of maybe thinking, is, do you think there's a case for maybe tearing down the way that we've conceptualized mental health and maybe conceptualizing it along different parameters than the DSM one? And again, I appreciate that's a giant question, but you spent so much time in this space. What, what do you think? How do you think about the categorization of mental illness? Okay, um, going back now, oh, number of years around 2013. Uh, the uh, National Institutes of Health, uh, then led, uh, led by Tom Insel and one of his associates, uh, Cuthbert, uh, came up with a different view uh, of how we should be looking at mental illnesses. Rather than saying, you are depressed, okay, uh, they broke this down into what now referred to as the RDOC system. And what the RDOC system does is it says, okay, let, let's form a matrix. At the top here, we're going to have different levels uh, of biology, going from the cell uh, to a group of cells, hormones, whatever, okay, uh, whole brain and connectivity between brain structures and so forth. On this axis, let's look at a whole bunch of uh, symptom clusters, okay, or symptoms themselves, okay. And on this basis, what you could look at is say, okay, this this set of neurotransmitters is associated, or hormones is associated with these particular symptoms, say cognitive symptoms or somatic symptoms, neurovegetative symptoms, and so forth. And how are these, how are these characteristics, including the genes and epigenetic changes, how are these leaded, uh, related to particular treatments? Let me use a, a, a very simple example of this. But I'm going to switch from um, psychological process to something not more straightforward, but something more people will know about. Uh, women with breast cancer, they cu- the breast cancer can come in various forms. But one of the things that the oncologist may ask right from the start is, what are the characteristics of this breast cancer? Is it sensitive to estrogen? Are estrogen receptors altered in some way? Or is it not? 
Okay. And on that basis alone, okay, there's other factors here as well. I'm just using this one component. But on that basis alone, uh, the clinician will know, I need to treat this with this drug versus this chemotherapeutic agent. Okay. So if you have an, if estrogen levels are high, then, you know, you can deal with an estrogen acting agent. But if estrogen is irrelevant, okay, then no point dealing with that. Okay? The same thing is true in our model of mental illnesses. Certain types of uh, symptoms, along with certain biological processes, may tell you an SSRI will work, okay, or may likely work. Whereas other symptoms might tell you, well, the SSRI won't work, and you're probably better off saying with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, mindfulness or something of that nature. Okay? Um, and so this RDOC approach is a step forward. It's part of what's usually referred to as precision medicine to identify those features of the individual, okay, but going more than just the genetic features, could include early life experiences, could include uh, specific symptoms and so forth, are tied to certain types of illnesses. And these can be predictive, this whole gamut of factors, as to which treatment will be most effective. Now, uh, the, the approach isn't perfect. It leaves out a whole bunch of very important features, least of which, well, not least of which, one of which is um, cultural factors. So, for example, uh, how we define illnesses is based on our society. Okay? So in our group, we may say, if you have X and Y and Z, then you're depressed. And if you have K and R and S, then you're anxious or you have some uh, comorbidity between the two. Okay? In other cultures, it may not be the same. Okay? For that matter, the biology in other cultures is different, which I'll come back to in a second. Okay? So the rules we have okay, to treat the person from Asia versus the person from North America should be very, very different. Okay? Dealing, for example, there's a, there's a researcher by the name of uh, Kermeyer, who's in Montreal, absolutely brilliant person. He's been dealing with First Nations and Inuit people for many, many years, and he's criticized the RDOC simply on the basis that it's not culturally sensitive or not culturally inclusive. He's suggested that we need to look at these cultural determinants in making our diagnosis and providing treatments appropriately. Now, even at the simple level of genetics, uh, you're, you're familiar with what a polymorphism is, and that is um, a mutation within a gene. And the term single nucleate polymorphism means that this polymorphism or this mutation has happened at one particular site on a gene, a small little change. And it's felt that some of these polymorphisms causing genetic changes uh, may be associated with certain types of illnesses or conditions or even something less dramatic. So, for example, uh, you've probably heard of oxytocin. This is that hormone that's associated with bonding and things like this. And when a polymorphism occurs on the gene that codes for oxytocin, you may get differences in bonding and social support and things of this nature. Well, as it turns out, uh, this polymorphism occurs in about 20% of uh, Euro-Caucasians, okay? However, 
if we look at people from certain parts of Asia, uh, that polymorphism occurs in 80% of individuals. Now, I'm not making a value judgment as the polymorphism good or bad. There are occasions in which that polymorphism can be very valuable, which I'll describe if you like. Um, but the point is that if you're going to treat somebody with an oxytocin manipulation, which may come down the road at some point, okay, uh, for depression, for example, uh, you can count on it not being all that effective among Asian people, but might be more effective in Caucasian, Euro-Caucasian people, simply because the polymorphism is less likely to be present. Okay? We know that all sorts of drugs differ between males and females. Their effects differ between males and females. And we know that all sorts of um, symptoms can be different across cultures. And by the same token, treatments can have different effects across cultural groups. Yeah, actually, Jaime, would you mind maybe just drilling down on that oxytocin story just a little bit? I'd love to hear about the implications potentially of that polymorphism. Sounds really interesting. For ages, whenever I think of oxytocin, I get really ticked off at the media who named it the love hormone. Now, if you could anthropomorphize about a hormone, okay, you'd, you'd think that oxytocin would be embarrassed, okay? It's like, don't call me the love hormone. I, I I, I do other things, you know, and that one seems to be a little gooey. At any rate, um, it seems that uh, oxytocin can have well, large effects in both males and females. Some people have suggested that oxytocin in females, uh, because females have a stronger tend and befriend uh, feature, will help them in that domain. It has similar effects in males, okay, but in males... Um, it has other effects as well. And males tend to be, quote, the man of the house and more protective. And for males, it not only helps them in tending to others, but protecting them from the outgroup. Okay. So the in-group is good and the outgroup is bad. And so instead of thinking of tend and befriend, some people think of uh, oxytocin as having effects of tend and defend. Okay. Doesn't matter how you look at it, oxytocin may have some very good effects. Now, if oxytocin has good effects, then the obvious prediction is if oxytocin isn't there, or the receptors for oxytocin aren't present, then you're worse off. Okay. And so people with polymorphisms should be um, less able to form social connections because they don't have the oxytocin that perhaps might be needed and stuff like this. But is this always the case? Is, are there occurrences in which not having oxytocin might actually have some beneficial effects? So one of my ex-students, uh, Robin McQuaid, and another ex-student, Oakland McKinnis, did a study, oh, this goes back maybe 10, 12 years ago, where they looked at people's earlier histories. And they asked a simple question, early life history, uh, abuse, for example, is associated with later depressive occurrences. And we know this and have known this for some period of time. Is this in some fashion related to oxytocin? Okay. So they looked at people with bad or not bad early life experiences and with or without having these polymorphisms present. Now, in a regular person who had no bad experiences, okay, if their oxytocin system was fine, so were they fine in terms of their mood state. And if they had a polymorphism present, that was less likely. They were more likely to show some depressive symptoms, not over the moon, but less likely. Okay. 
Now, if a person had a polymorphism present, okay, and they experienced no bad events early in life, so everything was fine, okay, they were at a disadvantage later in life in the sense that their polymorphism would put them in a bad place, okay? But if they had a polymorphism present, okay, it, in a sense, also protected them from bad events, okay? That is, um, if they had a polymorphism present and they encountered bad events early in life, they did not show the depression that might otherwise be present in adulthood. The polymorphism, in a sense, protected them. This led Robin and Opal to take a different view as to what oxytocin was actually doing. Rather than looking at tend and befriend, what they suggested was simple, simple as, as pie, I guess. Um, they suggested that what oxytocin was doing was making you more sensitive to environmental triggers, good or bad. Okay, so if good, if you had a proper oxytocin system, you encountered good events, also particularly social events. By the way, if social events would be very rewarding and reinforcing, and you want to meet other people and so forth. Okay. If you had an oxytocin polymorphism, your social uh, sensitivity would be diminished and you would be uh, less able to form good coping using other people. Okay? Same thing is true with respect to uh, negative events. Uh, encountering negative events okay, will make you alert, but if it's too much, it can also put you in, uh, in a bad state. You're not alert to negative cues and things that could forewarn you of bad events. And as a result, you're not prepared to deal with them. If, on the other hand, <coughs> sorry, so if you've got the oxytocin working properly, you're fine. And if you have a polymorphism there, you're not going to be able to deal with these bad events in the way that you should. I, I guess I would have to think about what you just said uh, for a little bit to see how it aligns with an idea that came up for me as you were speaking. I'm not sure if you've heard of the book, um, The Orchid and the Dandelion by Thomas Boyce. The gist of the book is that some children thrive versus others struggle quite a bit. And they've been able to predict this by looking at physiological reactivity early in life. So they have this standardized protocol. They see how the children respond. And if they have an enhanced, say, cortisol response or adrenaline response or heart rate response, these children are deemed to be sort of the orchid children. And what's really interesting is that while the dandelions, let's say, who are less reactive, they, they tend to do you know pretty well on average, no matter what environment you put them in. The orchids are exquisitely sensitive in good and bad ways. They're, they're literally thin-skinned in the sort of true sense of the word that good environments really impact them quite favorably, but negative environments also really impact them quite negatively as well. So I, I can't rec recall if they worked up any sort of polymorphisms or anything like that, but how does a model like that strike you or that idea that some people are really reactive to the environment, both in positive and negative ways versus other people? They're kind of, they're kind of whoever they are, no matter where they are. To an extent, uh, and I say to an extent, I agree with that. Uh, there's some people who are reactive both to positive and negative stimuli. So, for example, as you know, um, when you look at, if you subdivide people into odd categories, but which I don't like, but if you looked at people who were typically referred to as typical depressive people, um, they show symptoms such as uh, decreased sleep, decreased eating, things like this. Okay, The atypical type of depressed person uh, shows uh, 
increased sleep, increased eating, things like this. So they show these reverse neurovegetative features. Uh, but one of the interesting features of the atypical depression is they're highly reactive to environmental cues. Okay. Now, if you take a depressed person and you say something negative to them, they go down quickly. If you say something positive, well, the world is so bad, you know, it's like nothing phases them if it's positive. For the atypical person, if you say something negative to them, they react very strongly in a negative way. And if you say something positive, you say, that's a really nice suit or dress. Really? You know, they respond. Okay. So they're responding in both directions. We see the same types of things in some people who are not depressed. Okay. And just so, just as we see uh, some people eat less when they're stressed and other people eat more. Okay. Perhaps they're trying to uh, self-medicate. Okay. They're reacting differently to stimuli. Okay. But we shouldn't be mistaken that all people who are highly reactive are always going to fare poorly in terms of negative stimuli. They may have some wonderful coping systems, may have really great social support systems. They have a group that they identify with strongly. Okay? So there's the, these types of factors can mitigate or militate against uh, negative events. Okay? When we look at um, biological processes related to virtually any disease I can think of, okay, certainly uh, psychological disorders, okay, they're complex diseases. They, we've used example for example, for such as oxytocin, but there's much more that goes into it. There's all sorts of neurotrophins, growth factors, various other hormones, neurotransmitters, gut microbiota. There's a whole constellation of factors that go, that go into the mix. And whether a person uh, is vulnerable or not vulnerable, I think of it sometimes in part on a continuum, okay, where let's pretend there were 10 factors. If you had all 10 good factors, you were at this end. And if you had none of the 10, you had zero, you were out at that end and people in between, okay? Um, but at the same time, there's a other set of dimensions, orthogonal dimensions, okay, that can come into play. So, for example, uh, you might have a gene that makes you very vulnerable to illness, but you may also have an epigenetic change that cause you to be less vulnerable. Or you might have social support systems, as I said before, that can diminish all the bad effects. On the flip side, you can be highly resilient and you can overcome just about anything, okay? But, you know, you can have a brain aneurysm that's going to put you to the grave just like this, despite the fact that you've got a, a wonderful biological system. But the same thing is true you, with respect to psychological dimensions. You know, you could be a very resilient person, but you hit just the wrong stressor at the wrong time, okay? And all of those good systems you have are worth nothing, okay? So, yeah, yes, I agree with the, the general premise, but within limits. I think one of the themes of our conversation today in general is just how complicated these systems are and how many axes intersect you know, yeah. to ultimately explain an outcome in any particular person, it's very difficult to make broad generalizations uh, in, in any respect. And this is why the precision medicine approach is potentially so valuable. It's taking many, many factors and it's saying, well, we might not know all the answers, but if I know 
A, B, and C about your biology and H, K, and L about your early life experiences and the way you cope and so forth, it give me some clues as to what the best treatment strategies might be, okay? Since you're taking, as you say, all these intersecting systems and you're trying to boil them down. Now, this is very complex in, at the moment, as in many other um, fields, it's virtually impossible for a clinician, I think, to sit there and with a pad and pencil or whatever, laptop, and try to deduce what's happening. Ultimately, I think that with machine learning or uh, processes like these, it will become uh, more reasonable to expect that um, the confluence of different factors that come together to predict what the best treatment will be will, will be possible. Now, this will obviously entail lots of uh, clinicians getting together and lots of neuroscientists getting together to input the data. Okay, But ultimately, maybe uh, clinicians like yourself will be able to put the information into the tablet okay, and be told, okay, here are three options for you. Okay, If A doesn't work, try B. That's what we do now, but, but usually without any um, data to tell us what to do. Okay, basically use the use the favorite drug or use the favorite uh, uh, cognitive approach or whatever it happens to be. But there's got to be better methods. Yeah. So Jaime, my next question, I think, sort of, it, it's a little bit tangential to this idea, but it's it is related, I believe. Uh, I've had uh, Dr. Joseph Ledoux on the podcast, who, of course, you would be, you know, very, very familiar with. And, you know, he's recently, you know, he was known for the, as being the amygdala guy, right? And the amygdala was wrongly labeled the fear center. And it's obviously way more complex than that. And he's really tried to make the point that the experience of an emotion, say like fear or anxiety is a conscious experience that requires a sense of self. And he's also made the point that perhaps some of the reasons why medications have not turned out to be the panacea that was hoped is that they act upon, you know, subcortical regions of the brain, which may be less involved in conscious experience, that, that sense of self. It made me think of the potential value of cognitive behavioral therapy and other forms of therapy with respect to modulating emotional experiences, right? So if, if emotions are a function of conscious experience in the sense of self, that's exactly what sort of therapy or the plane at which therapy operates. So I guess, you know, again, for, for someone who's been so involved in behavioral medicine, has, has very good knowledge of bo both the psychological and the neurobiological side of things, how do you think about the mechanism of action for uh, therapy, I guess, uh, from that lens or any reaction to Joe's model just in general? I think it's a very interesting model. I'm not sure what the best uh, approach would be to dealing with it. Um, are imaging studies going to be helpful to tell us what's happening under one set of such, uh, conditions versus another? So, for example, it's probably not a great idea to look at imaging or looking at any functioning under ideal conditions, but rather under conditions where a challenge is present. So uh, an, MRI, an fMRI study could be done, for example, to look at what's happening at uh, lower brain structures under a set of conditions and what's happening simultaneously at higher level brain structures, both before the challenge and after the challenge. That might give you some clues as to some of the processes that are operating. It wouldn't, that in itself wouldn't tell you uh, about specific neurotransmitters or other neurochemicals uh, that are operating. I suppose that with the combination of uh, 
fMRI and PET, which can give you some idea of some of the chemical changes. Uh, this could be advanced still more. Uh, but, the, but the notion's a good one. It's essentially saying, look, okay, depression is a cognitive experience as well as uh, an emotional and, um, for lack of another term, uh, an old world or ancient experience. Okay. Uh, and, and we need to put these together in a proper way. Now, who is the person who's going to be most receptive to cognitive therapy? Well, we know that, yeah, I'm sure you know very well, uh, that there's a group of people who say, cognitive therapy, I don't want that. Okay, it's, it's corny. It's full of, just give me a pill. Okay. And um, I have a colleague who I've worked with for years. And he tells his patients, you know, about um how the drug works and what it does and so forth. And, and when they're given the option of cognitive therapy and he suggests to them a combination of cognitive therapy and drug therapy, no doc, just give me the pill. Okay. Um, the cognitive, if you go in with the attitude of, I don't like this stuff. I don't want this stuff. Okay. The expectancy will be, or maybe sufficiently strong so that the drug, so that the treatment rather doesn't work. Same thing is true of mindfulness. Okay. If you see it as corny and not going to be effective, then it's not going to be effective. You'll have a nocebo no as opposed to a placebo effect. Okay. Uh, but there may be ways of determining um, who is going to be receptive to cognitive therapy and who will gain from it. Okay. So that notion of, um, of dividing upper brain and lower brain function could be a really good one, provided that the patient is amenable to whatever treatment you want to give them. A couple more questions for you, then I'll let you go. You've been so generous with your time already. One thing I want to do is fact check one of the pet theories that I've had about how COVID's going to go. What I've seen with clients at the individual level, whether it's going through unemployment or a divorce or the illness of a loved one, is that the crash often comes once the stressor's been resolved. It's almost like the body can be like, oh, now I can get sick. You know, now the coast is clear. Jaime, is there any merit to this theory whatsoever from your lens? Or do you think people are, you know, obviously there's going to be individual difference, but what do you think about this idea of there may be a lot more difficulties once things are resolved than during the actual stressor? Yeah. It's funny you should mention this is a notion I've had now for about 40 years, <laughs> maybe more. Okay. There's protective mechanisms in place saying, look, now I can't get sick now. I've got to deal with this. Later, I can get a cold. Okay. Now, think of this. When you're in a stressful situation, your immune system is activated, your neurotransmitters are activated, and so forth. Okay. It has, they have to be to deal with the stress that's going on. Now the stressor goes away. Your immune system says, thank goodness, and it relaxes. But does it, if it started here, it may have gone up, but does it simply come down to normal or does it fall below normal? Okay. It typically should fall below normal. There has to be a recuperative phase. Okay. So if you, if your immune system is challenged, okay, there's some stressors happened, you now come down and you meet a stressor when you're right afterwards, okay, when your immune system is in that crash phase trying to recuperate, you might be more vulnerable to an illness. Okay? Shortly afterwards, when you come up, you should be fine. So there was this notion among um, elite athletes okay, 
that after a marathon or things of that nature, they're going to be in a vulnerable state. Okay, Their immune system is crashed. This is called the open window hypothesis. And during that window of time, okay, they're going to be highly vulnerable to pathogens that happen to be floating around. Now, those pathogens may not be floating around, and that period may be very small, and uh, but they might be more vulnerable to the pathogen. But shortly afterwards, things come back up. The same thing might be true of, in a psychological sense. Neurotransmitters, hormones, they too need to recuperate. They might need some time off. They might need a safe place. So psychologically, after a trauma we, or after a stressor, we need to be in some safe place so that if another stressor comes along, we're not affected. Okay? But at the same time, even in the absence of another stressor, those neurotransmitters may not be in the best shape. Those hormones need to recuperate. And so we might be in this vulnerable position for some period of time. Okay? So I agree with that. The question is, how long does it last? Well, that's a great question. I think of all the people who are going to be going back to work, who maybe are working from home and are going to be asked to go back to work. And I think a lot of people are going, you know, they've been working from home, but back to the physical workplace, right? I think everyone's going to need, I don't know what the length of time is. I don't know, let's say six months to a year, maybe processing this situation, what it's meant, what the implications were, what just happened, what what was, you know, how did our leadership do throughout this process, there's going to be a lot to think about. So I think even let's say September 1st, we're all vaccinated. I don't think from a psychological perspective or a physiological perspective, this pandemic will be over. I think it's going to be, I don't making this up a year, year and a half until we're sort of really, really out of the jet wash uh, of this situation. I, I absolutely agree. But again, there's going to be those individual differences. Some people will just be so relieved to get back to work. They don't want to even think about the past as you alluded to earlier, some people, they don't want to know that they had a bad experience. And to recover, you you need to get them to uh, express or uh, vent about these types of occurrences and come to terms with them. Okay, Other people, uh, they're not going to be relieved to go back to work. In fact, they may view this as a, an extended holiday in this sense. And now having to go back is the pits. Okay. So there's going to be those big individual difference factors that have to be dealt with. But some of the long-term effects um, will be very long-lasting. As I said before, when when you encounter a stressor, your biological systems are primed to react in particular ways. Now, let's be realistic, okay? Uh, We often think that um, when a stressor is passed, it's over and done. It's not, Okay. It, there are lots of carryover effects. And before I talked about sensitization, here we have a clear clear case in which we need to be ultra careful if only governments will listen. Now, let's go back historically. Okay? 1918, we had, uh, or they had, we weren't there, uh, they had Spanish flu. In the 1950s, there was a Hong Kong flu. There was the Asian flu. There, okay? uh, in this century, Uh, We've had SARS, we've had MERS, we've had H1N1 all about 10 years ago. And as a result, there were repeated warnings and repeated warnings. We're going to have another pandemic. It's not, as as immunologists and epidemiologists tell you, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of uh, when. We're going to have another pandemic. This isn't the last of them. And some of this will linger. We might need to be vaccinated for 6 or 12 months against this one. Okay. But what happens, say, five, 
10 years down the road, when that next pandemic hits, and there will be a next pandemic, it's only a question of when and how severe, okay? What kind of effects uh, can we expect? Now, it's obvious that governments have not learned from the past, okay? I, I don't understand it. They just don't, okay? You've had multiple warnings. Instead of thinking we we were lucky, we dodged a bullet, okay? The attitude has been one of being cavalier, dismissive, lots of hubris, okay? Uh, we don't have to be, we don't need to have a plant that can do manufacturing. We'll start it uh, to manufacture vaccines. We'll start it once the pandemic hits, okay? Uh, equipment that's necessary isn't available. Uh, number of physicians and nurses are, are, aren't sufficient, okay? Be prepared. Uh, there's a very wonderful paper, an amazing paper, actually, written by a fellow by the name of John Drury, D-R-U-R-Y. It, it came out, actually, in December preceding the pandemic, okay? Uh, and it basically tells you how to be prepared, how to use social resources, and particularly social identity, to be prepared for a pandemic or a, a traumatic event. His wasn't specifically pandemic, but it certainly applies what to do during, and importantly, what to do afterwards. Okay, I would recommend that paper to just about anybody. Um, it, it's so thoughtful, and he has such good experiences dealing with major trauma. Okay, And one of the lessons he gives you, basically, is social connections, social support, how governments and people can interact, and what to do. You know, we cannot rely on the governments to do the right thing. Again, many of them are not thinking about the future. They're thinking about today, okay? They're working like, like our ancestral uh, genes. They're not looking down the road. They're not looking at how natural selection could behave to increase our ability to withstand things 40, 50 years down the road, okay? So it's up to the rest of us to tell the government, stop messing up. We want things in place because there will be a next pandemic and we need to deal with this now. You know, you and I can write letters and, to governments. It does nothing, okay? They don't listen, okay? You'll get some automated response or whatever, okay? Um, social action. You know, there, there's... A Peanuts cartoon, which I referenced in one of the books, okay, where Lucy says to Linus, see these five fingers? Alone, they're nothing. But united, they form a fist. Okay? And, and Linus goes, why can't you guys behave that way? Okay. <laughs> At any rate, the point is social action, dealing as a group, whether it's Black Lives Matters, whether it's... Um, Mothers for drunk drivers, acting together gets governments to move, okay? When you threaten them, all they really want, I think, is to be reelected. You only have to look at the United States today. My, what a disaster zone, okay? But when you behave as a group, okay, it's much more strength, much more strength in numbers, okay? And I think that's the way to influence uh, governments so that we'll be prepared in the longer run. And when we do that, there's a huge benefit. When we act in groups, we have our built-in social support. Okay, we we have like-minded people. You know, um, just as an aside here, and you might find it interesting. 
there's um, there's a wonderful woman. I'm trying to remember her name. I can't. Uh, she's in uh, Vancouver, but she does a lot of work dealing with uh, charity. What does charity do for us? Charitable giving and things like this. And uh, she does some amazingly wonderful work. When we do good things for others, we're not only helping them, we're helping ourselves. Okay, There's something good. We feel good about doing things. And biologically, it should have consequences as well. And uh, often I used to be asked to talk on radio around Christmas time, and they would always ask me, why do some people get depressed during the Christmas holidays and what should you do about it? And, you know, year after year, I'd say the same silly things, you know. And one year I said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to change the topic. I said, if you want to, if you get lonely at Christmas, which a lot of people do, everybody's out there having fun and you're all by yourself, you know, then the thing to do is uh, start volunteering for food banks collect money for people, collect clothing, collect presents, whatever it is. Do group activities where you can gain and give to others. Okay? And in doing that, you will not only feel better about yourself, but you'll meet like-minded people. Your social identity will be strengthened. And then you and them can have a good time together as well. Okay? So when we talk about social support, it, you can combine it with other things. L let's not just sit there and have our picnic Okay, let's not just sit there and go for a walk. Those are great. Okay, but maybe let's just do it together and do good things for other people together. Okay, and doing thing, good things for other people includes getting governments to do the right thing. Yeah, Jaime, that's so important. Uh, Jaime, have you read Warnings by Richard Clark and R.P. Eddy? No, I haven't. So for, for the listener, Richard Clark was working in government at the time, I believe is in the Clinton administration. And he was one of the people that had flagged the risk of 9-11 happening before it, it had happened. And of course, it, it came to pass and everything that's happened since. And so he's written this book where basically they go through and they've audited all, all of these different things that they think could happen that are being underestimated. Pandemic being one of them, they called this, you know, maybe three or four years ago. But they really do a great job of laying out how how many distortions humans have in the service of not going to those bad places, right? And I think back to myself even sitting in a bar the night before society shut down because I was I had a, I was supposed to go to the desert uh, last March with some buddies. And of course, I got canceled and we rescheduled it for October, naively thinking like, oh, this, this will blow through like no big deal, right? So all this to say, I think one of the problems in terms of mobilizing is at the level of the individual, our propensity for denial is so strong ourselves let alone alerting yeah. governments en masse to, to what the danger is. You know, it, it's funny you should say that. Uh, ironic you should say that. Um, back in, uh, oh, I'm having trouble remembering, around January, I guess, when in Wuhan they were building the two large hospitals in a matter of days, okay? And then I saw these pictures of people being locked into their houses with solder, uh, locking the doors, and I said, oh, oh, this is going to be bad. Okay, if China is building two huge hospitals, okay, and in such a fast pace, they know something that they're not telling us. Okay, and I had really bad feelings, and I had those bad feelings really uh, went on for a long time. But then I was supposed to go to New Orleans to a conference, okay, and I ended up going. Okay, and this was. COVID had already hit, but it hadn't been a big thing. And after I got back, I'm thinking, whoa, what a village idiot. 
Okay, you knew you had predicted, and yet you did this. I somehow pushed it into the back of my brain, or pushed it into my neck, or something. But it's irrational behavior. Yeah, I th- Jaime, I think cognitive dissonance is one of the most underrated uh, forces that we have to contend with as, as human beings. It's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, Jaime, I want to give you the last word here, uh, and, and I'll, I'll maybe throw it out as a question, but feel free to just redirect into whatever you'd like to speak to. What do you think is the biggest question left unanswered or that needs to be asked in behavioral neuroscience right now? Where does the field need to go or what, what would yield the biggest bang for the buck as a line of inquiry? Oh God, I couldn't tell you that there's one. There are just so many. Okay. Um, it's wonderful that people are digging down deeper and deeper into how cells operate and how neurotransmitters operate and growth factors and trying to manipulate and, modified genes using CRISPR or other technologies to get to get to various types of cures. Okay. But at the same time, um, there needs to be a lot more done looking at how those factors, those biological factors, are influenced by psychosocial determinants, okay, early experiences and things like this. So you know I have a lot of colleagues who they're, they're wonderful and they're very good at their job. Okay. But it's giving us a very small, small component of the bigger picture that's very important. Okay? The other thing that's not being done enough is the knowledge translation. Okay? Uh, it, it's fine and good for uh, the science to uh, be making advances, but so, at some point it has to be translated to other levels, not just... Um, types of things we've been talking about, telling people what to do, but also to government, uh, to all sorts of agencies, say, this is the science, and this is how it needs to be applied in terms of policy. Okay? You know, so you could know everything there is to know about certain types of illnesses, but unless governments take actions, okay, preventive actions, cure, cures, nothing's going to happen. I propose in this context, you know, that old expression about uh, uh, prevention versus cure, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I mean, there's so many illnesses or so many types of illnesses that are preventable illnesses. 40%, 50% of cancers are preventable. Much of heart disease is preventable. Okay. And yet everybody focuses on cure, not everybody, but a lot of people focus on cure. So I think, if I had to say one of the things that's not getting sufficient attention is prevention. Prevention in terms of behavioral types of things and prevention from a biological perspective. And to make, combine that with knowledge translation so people are properly informed, governments are properly informed as to what should be done. Uh, before we let you go, I want to tell you a little quick story uh, that relates to us meeting very early in my career that you might find a little bit funny. So... I think around second or third year university, I had wanted to take on a BSc after consulting with the late Bruce Pappas. I was in his uh, psychopharm class and I said, hey, do you, don't think, do you think I'd have any advantage doing a BSc versus a BA? And he said, uh, you know, you might want to consider a BSc. In any case, I went down that road and uh, promptly failed out because I didn't have the math abilities to, <laughs> to make it through the calculus and the algebra pre, uh, piece. Um, and so that left me with a lot of time in my hands. And I had just taken your third year uh, class of behavioral medicine, I believe it was at the time. And it was the year of the ice storm. What year was that? 1996? 
That was 19. Oh, jeepers. Or 98. I can't remember. I can't remember. I can't remember. For some reason, I think it's 89. Because I remember missing the very first class uh, because uh, because of the ice storm. I was certainly very late. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That So I taken that class with you. I was very interested. So I had a lot of time on my hands. And I had, I, I'm going to make this up. It was a Wednesday at 4 p.m. And I went to go to your office to ask you about volunteering. And at the time, I, remember, I know now you were talking to Kim Matheson and your door was open. And so I went close to the door. And at that time, I was, you know, quite a shy, kind of anxious, you know, kind of guy. And um, I heard you talking, so I backed away. And then I, you must have sensed I was there or something because you came out into the hallway and said, oh, hey, can I help you? I said, oh, yeah, I'd like to, you know, explore volunteering in your lab. You said, hey, come Monday, you'll start then. And and that set us off. So it's kind of a sliding doors moment for me. Like, I don't know what my life would, would have been like had you not followed me out of your office and uh, and uh, and tracked me down. So I want to thank you for doing that. Uh, I'm not sure what would have happened either way, but uh, our time together has really impacted my life and professional life. So I just want to thank you for that. Oh, that that's wonderful to hear. You know, when I, when I talk to my students, I say, you know, we come to points in our trajectory, you know, we can go left or we can go right. So we take the the long, easy road or the short, treacherous road, okay? Sometimes we don't know what's ahead. But it's, it's funny, you know, it, the slightest thing can make such a difference, okay? And uh, so I, I'm glad you chose, the, or I'm glad I helped you choose a, the right road, but we're not sure. You could now be the owner of Microsoft <laughs> if you hadn't have... <laughs> I highly doubt it with my math skills, but uh, no, I mean, Jaime, this is to me one of the biggest arguments for tolerating uncertainty that I try to tell clients, right? It's that it's not only bad things that flow from uncertainty, it's you never know when you're going to get that email, that call, bump into somebody that's going to change your life in positive ways that you can't even imagine. And I think one thing that COVID is showing us is that a lack of uncertainty is actually uh, from a, like a what's going to happen in my life is actually really soul crushing, right? We, you know, it's nice to have surprises and a sense of what's going to happen next. You know what? On another time, I'll tell you much more about how that, what you just described influences my research. But basically, you know, very often we have hypothesis driven research. I don't like that. If I have a hypothesis and it turns out, I go, yeah, I had a hypothesis, I predicted it. But sometimes you'll find something else, something in addition. You go, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. It, I, I gave a talk a number of years ago at the Neuroendocrine Society, and uh, I told the students that were in this big room with 500 people, there must have been about 300 students. I described this to them. I said, don't listen to your professors to tell you about having a hypothesis. I said, think of this. You go to the cupboard, you pick out a pair of pants, there's $20 in it. You haven't worn the pants in like three years. You find this $20. You think, Wow, $20. You think you're a millionaire all of a sudden. It's right. like the unexpected. It's so wonderful. You walk through the woods. You find something really cool. It's wonderful. If, on the other hand, you expected it, no big deal. Okay. So uncertainty has something to it. There's a little bit of flavor. Yeah. Not for bad things. Absolutely. I remember listening to a podcast with a, a very successful venture capitalist. And I think he said something along the lines of 85% of the money that he's made have come off of the third or fourth pivot from the original idea that they started with, right? So our ability to predict the future is so poor, it's worth just sort of sometimes taking a flyer and see where things go. Exactly. Yeah, that's how we do our research all the time. We have more misses than hits, but each miss gives us some clues to what, what direction we should take. For sure. Don't take this way. 
Jaime, listen, it's been uh, so great to catch up with you. It reminds me of uh, sitting in your office for hours at a time, just chatting back in the day. And uh, it was it was really, really wonderful to catch up. And uh, thank you so much for the time and expertise. Uh, really have really enjoyed catching up with you today. It's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure to see you. It's also been my pleasure to talk on your, your podcast here. Jaime, if people want to find you on the internet or if they want to pick up any of the books that you've uh, written, where can they find you? How can they access uh, more of what you've talked about today? Uh, I'm at Carleton University, and uh, my link is on the Carleton University uh, webpage. And um, I have a number of books that uh, you can get through Amazon. Um, <clears throat> in fact, um, this week, uh, the second edition of a health psychology book just came out entitled Health Psychology, a, Psych- a Neuropsychosocial Approach. Okay. Uh, just came out this week. And um, uh, there's another book, which is a little bit heavy, but it's with my uh, colleague, um, uh, Alex Kuznikov, uh, which deals with uh, the immune system and and its relationship to mental illnesses. And the two of us are now just about finished with a book on uh, uh, the impact of life, uh, lifestyles and such factors in cancer development okay, and progression and what to do about it, basically. But it's a bit heavy, too. And then I've got a couple of older books, one which is now going into a second edition on stress and, and illness. And so... Those can all be found on Amazon, including the newest book. Wonderful. Well, I recommend everybody pick those up, and I'm going to pick up the ones that I don't have yet. It's a good uh, reminder for me. Again, Jaime, thanks so much, and uh, I hope we can do this again. Wonderful. I'd love that. Excellent. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.